Well, this evening we have the pleasure of encountering Jesus through a parable, and not just any parable. This is known as the queen of all parables, the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. It has so many titles, uh, but whatever you decide to call it, it is the longest parable recorded uh, that Jesus give, gives us, and it is a literary and a theological masterpiece. It's so amazing. I don't have some kind of opening story or a a hook with, from popular culture or, uh, or kind of current events. I'm just going to dive right into this masterpiece. And over the next three weeks, it's, it's such a gem that we're going to break it up into three parts. We're going to focus on the three main characters. We're going to focus on the father. We're going to focus on the elder son. And this evening, we're going to focus in on the younger son. So let's allow the word of the Lord to seep deep into our hearts and to take root in our souls. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Speaking of Jesus, and he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and, a, and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The beauty in any good parable and the power of a parable is its ability to elicit a response from the hearer. Direct questions and propositions usually keep our thinking at an academic level when they don't necessarily have to penetrate the heart. In fact, sometimes if someone just comes up to you and says, how do you need to repent today? My guard goes up. Who is this person talking to me? Uh, I've got a lot of rationalization going on right now. My defenses go up. But, but a parable has this way of disarming us. And a parable like this one is a story that is so different from our own setting that we don't even necessarily associate ourselves with, with it or, or, or with our world. And that allows us to engage the story without our defenses going up. It starts off as a story that is about somebody else in a distant land 
And as every good parable does, it invites us to identify with the character and ask questions about our own motives and about our heart. In this story, a man has two sons. The younger son says, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so the father divides his wealth among them. Now we are two verses into this parable, and already we are at this crossroads of a very strange cultural situation. In our culture, if your parents have some kind of inheritance for you, it is generally in the form of money in the bank, or maybe investments that can be liquidated, or some sale of a future property or future business. In today's world, for example, I know several people personally who have received advances on their inheritance from their parents for helping pay off student loans or putting a down payment on a house. It's tremendous help in this market. How does anyone start off uh, in this market? I've even known some people who have kind of brokered the question, hey, mom and dad, can I get some help? I know you've got a nest egg set aside for me someday. So it's even acceptable in some circumstances to ask for an advance on your inheritance in our in our day and age. But as you might imagine, things were not the same in the ancient Near East. In those days, cash was not common. Like the ability to give cash to anyone was not a common thing. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, cash was extremely insecure. There were no banks. So cash in the form of coins had to be hidden on private property. It was under threat of being stolen or lost. In fact, like, I, I guess a lot of people must have lost their coins because there's all kinds of architectural digs where we found, like, just big treasure chests in the, in the ground and, and caches of, of coins, and people either died and left them or lost them or, or, or what. The, the second thing is that the family property was in itself a system of economy. The farm produced food, and wine, and livestock, and meat, and milk, and wool, and leather. And any overabundance of those products that the family didn't consume could then be used to barter for things that they couldn't make. So let's say this farmer's agrarian, they have several different crops, they've got wine grapes, they've got sheep and goats, and they have an extra abundance of leather made from goat skins that year. They're able to trade to the blacksmith who has a special craft, he's able to make tools and things, and then so they can barter for this. They don't need cash in this economic system. Family estates not only fed the family, but also employed family servants year-round and employed day laborers for special seasons. Now, these estates would be passed down from a father to his male children. Female children would often get married into other male children's estates, or unmarried women would just be part of the, the wards of the state. They would be with their brothers and father and, and the family. The elder son in these settings would be given a double portion of the inheritance. So if you've got four sons, the oldest gets a double portion, then the rest is, is divvied up equally among the other three. The reason for that is because the older son was expected to do more, to manage the family when the father died, to manage the estate. The secession of property from father to sons wasn't intended to be split up among them. They were all to live on the land, to work the land together, and to care for each other's families. Okay, so the older brother just has more responsibility, but they all stay there. They don't divvy it up and sell off pieces. It's passed down as a whole. So you see, when the, when the younger son asks for his share of the estate now, it was extremely insulting, not only to the father, but to the rest of the family. 
It was like saying to his father, I no longer want you to be over me. I want to manage my own share, my own slice of the estate without you, without your oversight. Now let's just pause for a minute and take stock of the story because it's about to get stranger. But just right now, let's take in what I've just said. Most people among us, especially sons and fathers, I don't know why that's such a thing, but we go through this period where we like to test and feel out what it's like to be out from under the thumb of mom and dad. We have a, a sense of needing to strike out on our own, to get out from under the umbrella and to figure out what we're made of. But from what we know of the father in the rest of the story, we can say with confidence that this father was not abusive, he was not, a, he was not vindictive, he was not harsh. So the younger son is not trying to run from an abusive situation. Whatever his reason, it's internally motivated. In any scenario, his request would be considered highly offensive and extremely out of the ordinary. But the next verse shows us the full extent of his request, a, a request that would be almost unimaginable to an original audience when Jesus is telling this parable. Listen to this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Did you catch that? The younger son not only asked for his part of the inheritance to manage it without his father's oversight, but he sold it off for cash. And he took that cash and traveled to a distant country, and then he squandered that cash. Like, you can't squander 50 acres of land and a bunch of livestock. You can't, like, take that to a distant land. He had to sold, sell it off, and then he took the cash, and then he squandered it in a distant land. Now, there are layers of offense in the son's behavior here. Let's start with the obvious, that by selling off the land, he's permanently reduced his family's holdings. He has permanently cut off. If he were to have future sons, now they have no stake in the family estate. They have no inheritance. Second, by selling the land and leaving his family, he would have brought shame on them. Some person from outside the family unit now owns the parcel that was left to the younger son. We don't know if it was in the middle of the land or on the border of the land, but some other person now is managing the estate that was once in the family. And in an honor-shame society, that's very shameful. But here's the ultimate shame. Even when a father divvied up land between his heirs, the expectation was always that while the father was still alive, he had the right to live off of the land. So even if I own these two parcels and I give one to my son Charles and one to my son Torin, and they manage them, I, I'm still, well, I'm alive, like I still get to drink the wine that comes from them and I get food that comes from them and you take care of me, it's, well, you take, take care of dad, okay? The family and the land was basically the retirement plan for dad and mom and the elders of the community. So in essence, and in reality, the younger son neglected his father by selling off part of what his father had to live on. And this is reflected clearly in verse 12, if you have your Bible. It says in English, he divided his wealth between them. In the Greek text, it says that the father divided his bion between them. That is from the root bios, from where we get biology, the study of life. So literally, it says that the father divided his life among them. 
He was gracious enough to divide it up between his sons early, but then the younger son sold it and took part of his father's life and gave it to another in exchange for cash. Are you feeling that? This is not a young adult taking a gap year trip between high school and university. It's not even a runaway young man who takes nothing from home and and runs away penniless. This is a young man who is saying in so many words, Dad, I'd rather have what I can get from you than be in a relationship with you. I'd rather be free and wealthy than part of this family. For all I care, I'd rather live life my way than have you live at all. The son's rejection of his father is made complete by going to a distant country. He's not only leaving his family and his hometown, he's leaving his Jewish roots, his way of life, his spiritual moorings. This young man is going to live in the land of the pagans where he believes he'll be free from it all, free from his father's watchful eye and free from the God of the laws that had governed his family. So he sets out and he walks away from family, from religion and extended community. And he goes into the unknown. And for a while, life seems like it's going okay. As long as he has enough money, he can keep himself entertained, he can keep himself intoxicated, and he's going to attract an entourage of people who will be friendly to him because, frankly, he's a fun guy to be around while he's got the money. For a season, he's self-sufficient. But even that, in reality, is a lie. Even the money and the wits to make it in a distant land come from the privilege of being raised by his family, being raised in a community under the guidance and the love of his father, and in the community that, rep- that, that worships the father. Autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency, I believe, are the holy trinity of our culture. Car commercials, almost all of them want to sell us some kind of, if you get this car, you're self-sufficient inside. Look at all the cool gadgets, and it will take you out of here, wherever that is. This Jeep will get you into the farthest mountain range. This amazing luxury car, you just hit the open road and no worries. We have vacation packages to Vegas that promise self-indulgence and license to do what you normally couldn't do under the watchful eye of your home community or your friends or even your spouse. Our culture holds up this picture of men as these wandering hunters, masters of their domain, and women who are free agents of their own destiny with the world at their beck and call. And both of those, of course, are lies in the reality. But like the younger son, we are never never truly unmoored from where we come from, are we? We're never truly self-sufficient. We were never meant to be. We were made for community. We were made for long-lasting, deep relationships with people. That's what it means, partly, to be made in God's image. Made in the image of a God who is eternally triune, who exists as a relationship Daryl Johnson says, at the center of the, of the universe is a relationship. We can't get away from that. 
the young man in the parable awakens to this reality like the end of a dream. His money is gone. He looks around. His pseudo friends are gone. And now he's a stranger in a foreign land, and he realizes he was never really one of them. He was always a Jewish foreigner who had gone to a pagan land. He was never truly accepted into any of their families, and so he's lonely. And as one would imagine, he's ashamed. He's written off his family. He's insulted his father. He's burned bridges with his community, and he's squandered his inheritance. He is nobody. He has no name. And it gets worse because he doesn't have time for an existential crisis. A famine has fallen on the land. There's not enough food, and what there is would be triple, quadruple, ten times as expensive as normal. In ancient times, just as today, when natural disasters strike, communities come together and care for each other. Back home, if disaster were to strike, a famine were to come, his father and his brothers and his community would share, and they would ration, and they would figure it out. But off on his own in a foreign land, what can this boy do? He wanted freedom. He wanted to be self-sufficient. And now he has more freedom than he knows what to do with. It reminds me of the famous line from Coolidge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. As the mariner floats on a shipwrecked chunk of the ship. But the sun has not yet sunk into the depths of his being. In an effort to find work, he hires himself out to a man who's a pig farmer. The Jewish son of the father has sunk so low that he is now working with animals forbidden by Jewish law. Even Gentiles made fun of pig farmers. There's poems about it in Latin and in Greek literature. I mean, pigs, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, they're nasty. Nobody wanted to work with them. But this kid is so desperate that he wishes he could eat the seed pods that the pigs got to eat. And this line is telling, no one would give him anything. For me, the revelation of the saga of the younger son, a story I have read and studied many times and likely you've read many times, it turns on a word I rediscovered this week when preparing for the sermon. The word is kalao. Can you say kalao? You just said the Greek word for glue. It's stuck in the Greek text. It means glue, adhere to, bond oneself to, That is the word our English Bible often translate as hired out. The son, it says, hired himself out to a man, and he sent him to feed the pigs. But what the text literally says is that the son glued himself, bonded with, formed a deep relationship with an unnamed pagan stranger who was so hard on him, he wouldn't give him as much as pig slop to eat in the midst of a famine. And then this is the point of the story. Well, I want to invite us in. We've been voyeurs up to this point, listening to this interesting cultural context and the story that happened in a parable long ago. But this is the universal door through which the story ceases to be an ancient tale about someone else in a strange culture, and it becomes about me and you and the person next to us. I am struck by this word kalao, to the idea of bonding with someone or with something in an effort to ease my pain or to give me a sense of significance or belonging or a purpose in life. 
In the story, the young man left his father, the source of his life. Whatever inner struggles the boy was having, at least he had love and food and community and hope and a future. But like the boy in the story, every human being was created to be in relationship to God the Father. Our life literally flows out of him. In a different metaphor, Jesus speaking in the Gospel of John, he says that the Father is the gardener, the vine dresser, that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. He implores us to remain in the vine, to remain in Christ, to draw our life from him. But like the younger son, haven't we all in some way or another, sought to go on our own? Haven't we responded to the siren calls of the world that seduces us into the life that we can be all we need? That if we bond ourselves particularly to this product or to that idea or to that person, we'll be happy. And the question I've been asking myself and I ask you today is what have you glued yourself to? Well, the list is endless. I mean, there's the obvious candidates, the things we use to cope. Drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, escapism, that we mask as vacations, but we're never really refreshed because we're just trying to get away from stuff. And the more socially acceptable bondage of our age are things like seeking significance through overwork, if you overwork, you're usually going to get a pat on the back. If you over-volunteer, you might get rewarded through props. Or it could be you're glued to the idea that your marriage partner should be everything you need rather than allowing them to be who they really are. It could be trying to make everyone else happy so much so that you forget who you are. Or it could be that you're trying to make yourself so happy that you forget whose you are. It could be the lie that your finances are all your own to spend as you please without ever consulting God first. Convicting. The boy in this story got himself into trouble when he separated from the father. And isn't it just like us that when he gets into trouble, he doesn't immediately turn home. He tries to get himself out of the trouble he got himself into. And when that doesn't go well, he finds another master, an anonymous master, indifferent to his suffering and also less likely to make him feel ashamed. Maybe the son felt like he couldn't go home at this point. How do you come back to that? Have you ever felt that way? Like you've gone so far, you're past a point of no return. Like you're in too deep. That the situation, the answer must be just right around the corner. That this time you've got that little addiction under control. That I just feel like things are going to go right this time and I'll get out of debt. That this time I won't alienate the people I love. I'm starting over. It'll be different. What idea, thing, or person have you bonded yourself to? Is it truly life-giving? Or have you come to realize that any master but the Father, any Savior but Jesus, is just a slave driver dressed up like a friend? In recovery, we call this rock bottom. In the parable, 
We call it coming to our senses. The young man comes to his senses. It's not quite repentance yet, but it's the first step. It's the awareness and admission that the people and things we've bonded ourselves as surrogate saviors can never take the place of the Father. That we've not only been seeking life in the wrong places, but that we've hurt other people in the process. The boy goes further, admitting that he sinned against both his human father and against heaven, which is just a circuitous way that people back then talked about God without saying God. It's a confession. Then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is a, a statement of humility. In a family large enough to have an estate like this one, the, boys, the, the one the boy seems to come from, there are two types of hired help. There are servants who are pretty much like part of the family, although a step I below in class. So think like the downstairs crew in Downton Abbey, or if you've ever been to an authentic Italian family-owned restaurant, like Italy, or maybe San Francisco or, or New York or something like that, a lot of times the family-owned and operated Italian restaurants will have a wait staff and host and hostess, and they'll eat together family style, like a family. That's what a servant was like in, in these times to a wealthy estate owner. But then there's another kind of servant, a day laborer who was just hired during harvest and maybe some big jobs. They would get paid daily and they would go live somewhere else at night. That's what the son is saying he wants to become. He's saying, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I'm not worthy to be part of the family. Just make me one of your hired men, one of your day laborers. At least I would have food to put in my belly that I'm not getting here. But repentance is more than just admitting you're wrong and humbly seeing how far you've fallen. It also involves making a change, and that requires leaving the distant country and coming home. If you were to ask the younger son in the story, hey, when is a good time to come home in retrospect, now that you've come home and been received by the father, I bet he'd say, come home before you leave the door. Life with the father is so good. There's nothing else that will satisfy. If you're unhappy, if you're frustrated, if you're fearful, if you're angry, if you're depressed, don't run from the father, I believe the younger son would say. Run to the father. Ask any addict, and they'll tell you it's better never to get glued to an addictive substance in the first place. Now, some of us may be one foot or two feet out the door already. Ask yourself, what are you truly seeking? What is it you think you might find apart from the Father? For most of us, I think there's a lie that we've been taught and that we believe, that once you come home, there's this unspoken rule that you can't come home again. So we repent of something, fill in the blank, and we change our ways for a while, and then we get sucked into the distant land again. Maybe it's a different distant land, or maybe it's the same thing over and over again. We revisit the revisit the old traps and the old haunts and the old sins that we indulge. And then we feel ashamed. 
The Father received me back once. Is there a limit to his grace? Is there a point to which he'll stop running toward me? Is there a moment when the door will be locked and he'll say, I never knew you, like in that parable in, in, or that statement in chapter 13? I don't think there's a point where he shuts a door in your face when you come to your senses. Not for those who repeatedly turn to the Father. When Jesus says that the door will be locked and shut and Jesus says, I never knew you, he's talking to people who haven't come home, who haven't come to their senses. And the invitation through this part of the parable tonight is, let's come to our senses. Let's pause now for a moment of silent coming to our senses and confess where you are, Lord. I've been in a distant land with A, B, or C, and I want to come home. Let's pray.